Um, Cindy, my wife, would have loved to have been here, but um, unfortunately her dad was diagnosed this week. He was, we knew he was ailing and just weren't sure what the problem was, but we found out that he, is, he has uh, stomach cancer. Now, he's 91 years old, and he sent this uh, email to the family this morning, and, and I'll read part of it. It's a health update, and he says this, I feel that the Lord is calling me home, and I'm at total peace with that. It's my hope and prayer that when your time comes, all of you will have the peace I have. And that is available to everyone by tapping into the power of Jesus and receiving him as your Savior. It's 91 years old and um, dying with so much confidence in, uh, in the Lord. And so, although Cindy would have loved to have been here, she's, uh, she's been at the hospital most of this week. And... Um, so if you remember to pray for us, we would appreciate that these next couple of weeks, months. We don't know will be difficult as we go through the, the process of uh, saying goodbye to, uh, to a dearly loved man. Anyway, it's a pleasure to be back, and it's a pleasure to be able to uh, preach God's Word to you this evening. Last week, we began our study in the book of Philemon. Philemon's a letter from the Apostle Paul to his friend and his co-worker in the gospel, uh, Philemon. And in it, he is asking, the Apostle Paul is asking Philemon to forgive Onesimus. Now, forgiveness is a difficult thing to do. Forgiveness is not easy at all, especially when the hurt that we are feeling has been inflicted intentionally. It's hard to forgive people who have wounded us deliberately, who have inflicted pain on us in a malicious way. When we've been betrayed, when we've been rejected, slandered, abused, forgiveness is not easy. And I understand that it is not our natural reaction. The natural reaction for most of us is perhaps to do something like this. Some of us will seek revenge. We'll lash out. We'll try to hurt back because we have been hurt. And that's a very natural reaction. Some of us will build walls around our hearts. We'll isolate. We'll build these walls so no one will ever hurt me that way again. I will not let people in. I will not allow myself to be isolated. So we run away uh, to hurt. So we run away and we isolate ourselves. Some of us minimize the hurt. It's not a big deal. It's not that big a deal. Or we other, otherwise, we blame ourselves. That must be my fault. It's something I said, something I did. I'm responsible. Sometimes we carry guilt and we carry shame for the hurt that we have received from others. And then a lot of us internalize the anger. It just sort of sits inside and it smolders. And, and what the Bible says is the root of bitterness develops. And that root of bitterness not only uh, affects the relationship with the person that hurt us, but it affects all kinds of other relationships in our lives. And it's a very malicious, a very malignant thing. And we need to be very, very careful of that. Forgiveness for Christians, however, is not an option. It is something that we are commanded to do. And we talked about that last week for three reasons. The necessity of forgiveness, first of all, it creates peace within the church. It creates a sense of God's presence in the church that is palpable and reflects the truth of the gospel to the world. It it substantiates, therefore, and affirms the gospel. And thirdly, it confirms the authenticity of our salvation. People who forgive are people who know what it means to have been forgiven. 
Forgiving people have the capacity to give God's grace to other people because they have received it themselves. Forgiveness and the capacity to forgive is something that should testify to us that God has done a work of grace in our lives. Tonight I want to talk about how to do this, how to forgive. And I want to begin by telling you a little story. Uh, a couple of years ago, Cindy and I had the privilege, actually I've had the privilege three times now to travel to South Africa with a, with a group of missionaries and, and minister in South Africa. And it's a, I think it's the most beautiful country I have ever been in in my life. I love South Africa. It's a, it's a great place. You guys from South Africa? No. You want to go? <laughs> you should go. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. I had a day off one day, and I took the ferry out to uh, Robben Island. If you know anything about uh, Cape Town, Robben Island is, is an island in the, in, the, in the bay where Nelson Mandela was kept prisoner for 27 years. It's a barren rock. It's a miserable place. He spent 27 years in the limestone, chipping the limestone, making, making gravel horrible existence. And he was there for no other reason than he felt that apartheid was wrong and he stood against it. After 20, I, Actually, I was in the cell. I stood in the cell where he was kept for 27 years. It, no bed, just a mattress on the floor and a blanket. But after 27 years, he was released from prison. And this is what he said on the day he was released. He says, as, as I stand before the door of my freedom, I realize that if I do not leave my pain anger and bitterness behind me, I will still be in prison. And that's what unforgiveness does to us. Unforgiveness is a prison. Bitterness is a prison. The inability to give God's grace to another person is a prison. Lee Strobel says this, the medical evidence is clear and mounting. It is no exaggeration to say that bitterness is a dangerous drug in any dose. And that your very health is at risk if you stubbornly persist in being unforgiving. So the Bible tells us that we need to do this. We must forgive. We know from experience that unforgiveness is toxic. It is corrosive to relationships and it is toxic to our health. It is not something that is good for us. So we ask ourselves a question, how in the world do I forgive? How in the world do I forgive someone who has done something that is literally unforgivable? How can I possibly give that person grace who has violated me, who has rejected me, who has betrayed me? It feels so wrong. It's intuitively, it just doesn't feel right. How do I do it? Well, I think Paul answers that question in a little phrase that we often read past without thinking about it. He says this, be kind to one another, tenderhearted to one another, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. How do we do it? As we said last week, we understand what God in Christ has given to us. And then by the power and through the working of the Holy Spirit, we give that grace to others as an act of obedience, as an act of worship. Do you remember the story in Matthew 18? Matthew 18 is the passage of Scripture where Jesus says, if your brother has something against you, go to him and be reconciled. If your brother sins against you, go to your brother and be reconciled. And then he goes on to talk about how the church is, should 
uh, enact this thing called church discipline in order to create unity and maintain unity within the church. It's a very, very important passage. Right after that passage, Peter asks Jesus a question. And, and he says, Lord, how many times should we forgive people who have sinned against us? And Peter, I think, was feeling very magnanimous that day. I think he was feeling very gracious that day because the rabbis used to teach that if somebody sinned against you, you were obligated to forgive them three times. Peter says, Lord, should we forgive them seven times? In other words, let's, let's double up what the Pharisees teach and add one for good measure. What do you think, Lord? That's pretty good, isn't it? And Jesus says, Peter, you don't get it. You don't get it at all. Our job is to forgive 70 times seven. In other words, like in, indefinitely, infinitely, habitually, nonstop. That's who we are. That's what we do. We forgive people because we have been forgiven. And I think Peter had a hard time understanding that story. I think he had a hard time getting his head around what Jesus was saying. So Jesus told him another story. He told him about a king who had a nobleman who owed him 10,000 talents of silver. One talent of silver equaled 20 years of a laborer's wage. So that's 10,000 talents of silver. 10,000 times 20 years of working. It is an inestimable amount of money. Huge amount of money. Now that guy owed the king that much money. And he comes to the king and says, I don't have it. The king says, well, you got to go to jail until you can pay it back. And the guy falls down and he begs the king and asks the king for mercy. And the king, feeling magnanimous and feeling kind and loving that day, shows him mercy and doesn't just give him time, but he forgives the entire debt. I figured it out. It's about $6 billion in today's money. $6 billion. You're forgiven. So that guy who had just been forgiven goes back to his place and he realizes there's a servant that he has that owes him a hundred denarii. A hundred denarii is what uh, you got a denarii every day you go to work. So it's equivalent to a hundred days labor. And the same guy couldn't pay and he does the same thing. He begs for time. The king's, the, the, this, this guy who had been forgiven $6 billion, he says no. And he throws this guy and his, and his whole family into jail until he could pay back the 100 denarii. Now the fellow servants are seeing this and they go to the king. And listen to what they, they, said, they said. They told the king about what had happened, all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him. So the king summons the guy who had just been forgiven Ah. Uh, 10,000 talents, or about $6 billion. And he says this to him. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not now you have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, he delivered him to the jailers until he could pay all his debt. And this is, listen to what Jesus said. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Forgiving from the heart is what we do as Christians. It's hard, 
but by the power of the Holy Spirit, with an understanding of the gospel, it is possible for us to forgive. And so I want to talk tonight about how. I want to say five things about about how to do it, the means of forgiveness. But before I do, I want to pray with you and just ask that the Holy Spirit would give us the grace to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. Father, I just thank you so much for the privilege of preaching your word. I thank you that it is active, it is alive, it is dynamic, it is powerful. It's like a two-edged sword that penetrates right to the heart of the matter. And Lord, I pray tonight that all of us who hear this message, including myself, Lord, that the Spirit of God would take the Word of God and apply it to the people of God, apply it to our hearts. So, Lord, if there are relational issues that need to be fixed, if we are carrying bitterness, if we are blaming ourselves and carrying a pile of illegitimate guilt, if we're allowing a root of bitterness to build up in our hearts, if there's an estrangement that needs to be fixed, Lord, whatever it is, I pray, Holy Spirit, that by your grace, and by your power, you would bring healing to that brokenness in a marriage, in a relationship, in a friendship, whatever it is, Father, in a family. Do what only you can do and use your word to accomplish that for your glory and our blessing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's go back to Philemon, and I want to begin reading with you at verse 10. And I'm not going to read the whole passage. I'm just going to read it as we go. So Paul, in his letter, has said this. He says, he's speaking to Philemon, he says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So I led, Peter Paul's like, I led Onesimus to Christ. I became his father in the faith. Formerly he was useless to you, but now indeed he is useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. And the first thing I want to say is this, is that we got to trust God and trust others. If we're going to forgive and we're going to do it biblically and we're going to do it well, the first thing is this. We've got to trust God and trust others. Paul understood the risk that there was in sending Onesimus back to Philemon. Philemon, if he had wanted to, could have had Onesimus crucified. He could have sold him. He could have had him beaten. He could have done anything he wanted because in that culture, in that day, Onesimus was simply chattel. He he was completely and totally owned by Philemon. But in this passage of Scripture, Paul calls Onesimus my child. And I'm sending him back. I'm sending my very heart back to you. I'd love to have kept him because he is useful. But I'm sending him back because it is the right thing to do. And he is now, remember this Philemon, he is a beloved brother in Christ. And so what Paul is doing here is making himself vulnerable. He said, I could have commanded you as an apostle of Jesus Christ. I could have just simply told you what to do. But I'm not going to do that. I'm appealing to you as my brother for my brother. I'm leading with my heart. I'm coming at you, Philemon, as a brother on my knees, and I'm asking you to do the right thing. He was taking a risk. He was leading with his heart. Listen, he was risking risking rejection in order to realize reconciliation. And forgiveness never happens. Reconciliation never happens until we are willing to make that risk. 
in your marriage, with your children, with your parents, in, in any relationship, if there is a brokenness, if there's a fissure, if there's a relational issue, it is only going to be fixed when somebody leads with the heart and risks the rejection in order to bring about reconciliation. Now, why did Paul do this? Paul knew something that he had written 1 Corinthians already. And in that passage, no, 2 Corinthians, he'd written, it, he'd written them both. But in that passage of Scripture, he says this, if anyone, anyone is in Christ, if any man, any woman is in Christ, they are a new creation. They're a new creature. They're born again. They're brand new people by the grace of God. If Onesimus is in Christ, he is a new creature. If Philemon is in Christ, he is a new creature. He knew that he was dealing with people who had been born again and transformed by the Spirit of God. And so on that basis, he leads with his heart. He makes himself vulnerable. He risks rejection because he knew that he's dealing with people who were born again by the power of the Spirit of God. He was trusting the work of God in the life of Philemon in order to accomplish something that would never otherwise have had happened had he not risked his heart. Forgiveness happens when we risk. Risk rejection. Risk hurt in order to pursue reconciliation. One of the reasons that we don't find forgiveness happening in the church the way way we should is we don't define people properly. We define them by their sin. We define people by their failure. That person hurt me, therefore he is, therefore she is that. No, they're they're a new creature in Christ who screwed up. It's a a person who's been born again who made a mistake. Trust God. Put your heart out there. And in 99.9% of the cases, my experience has been, and I think your experience will be exactly the same as the Apostle Paul's, when you lead with your heart, particularly with a man or a woman who was born again by the Spirit of God, who has made a mistake and has hurt you, but when you lead with your heart, they're going to respond with their heart. A heart made new by the power of the Holy Spirit. But that never happens when we define people by their sin. We define people by their failure. When we define people by their offense against us. You know, real reconciliation, real forgiveness, real healing happens in the church when we start giving people the benefit of the doubt. I I pastored my church in Georgetown for 30, almost 33 years before I transferred the leadership to a new guy. I think he's preached here, actually. Pretty sure he has, right? Steve. And one of the things he used to say to the elders all the time, all the time, is we must expect people to do the right thing. Move forward on the premise that people will do the right thing. Don't make decisions on the, on the assumption that they're going to do the wrong thing. They're not going to be faithful. They're not going to do the right thing. Let's lead the church on the assumption that God's people will do the right thing. Because they're God's people. And I think the same thing is true of us. In our relationships, we must assume that people will do the right thing. So here's, here's something really practical that I think is so important. It's what, what I call the XYZ principle. Now, now, most people, when they get hurt, this is what I'm inclined to do. When somebody hurts me, my first instinct is to say, you're a jerk. Just being really honest with you. <laughs> what, a, what a moron. 
What an idiot. And, and if you give voice to that, it really doesn't go well. Usually the response is, well, you're a bigger idiot, which may, may or may not be true. I don't know. Could potentially be true. So what I've learned to say a long time ago is this, <clears throat> leading with your heart. When you do acts in situation why I felt, I just, I just lay my heart out. So when Cindy hurts me, not that it happens very often, but I try to say this, honey, when you did that, in that situation, I felt wounded. I felt disrespected. I felt unloved. I didn't feel listened to. I didn't feel honored. When you did that, in that situation, here's my heart, honey. And I know she loves me. Like, she stayed with me for over 40 years, so she must. Or she's a masochist, I suppose. But... I know she loves me. And when I say, here's my heart, I'm not accusing, I'm not pointing a finger, I'm not calling her names, I'm not calling her stupid or unkind or selfish or anything. I'm just saying, in that situation, when you said that or you did that, here is what I felt, sweetheart. And you know what it does? Because she loves me, because she is a new creature in Christ, it gives her an inclination to love me. But that would never happen unless... I'd led with my heart. And she does that in my life. Probably a lot more than, because I, I screw up a whole lot more than she does. But she goes, honey, when you did that in that situation, I felt. And then I see her heart. And I think, man, I love this woman. I don't want to hurt her. You've got to learn to lead with her heart. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul did. He took a risk. He risked more rejection in order to bring about reconciliation. Secondly, forgiveness means forgetting, kind of, sort of. What Paul also says in this passage of Scripture, <clears throat> he says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment, for he was formerly useless to you. Remember the name Onesimus means useful. He was useless to you. Like He was useful, and then he robbed you and stole and betrayed and ran away, and then he became useless, and then he came to Christ and became a new creature in Christ and became useful to me, and now I want him to be useful to you again. I want Onesimus to be back, being useful to you. And implicit within that request, and implicit within that statement, is this idea. In order for this to happen, in order for useful, who became useless, to become useful again, you must open the door. And in some respects, you've got to forget what happened. You can't treat him as you might have otherwise wanted to. I want him to be useful to you again. And so... Philemon is going to have to forget the offense, kind of, sort of. And I say it that way because forgiveness is not amnesia. You can't forget what happened, can you? Their shared history is their shared history. Onesimus did what he did. He may have done it because of what Philemon had previously done. We don't know the backstory. Their history is their history. And you can't just sort of block it out. That's not what forgiveness is. But forgiveness is this. Treating the person as if the action hadn't happened. 
It's forgetting what happened, kind of, sort of. You don't hold it against them anymore. You treat them as if you can't remember. Paul's saying this, Philemon, forget the hurt. Forget the betrayal. Allow him back into your life as a useful brother in Christ. Because forgiveness is a choice to treat the person who sinned against you as if they hadn't sinned against you. Now, I think most of us can do this. Most of us can do this when we see genuine repentance, when we see genuine transformation in the person who has wronged us. When there's a genuine sense of, hey, I blew it, I'm, re- I'm really sorry, would you please forgive me? Most of us, I think 99.9% of Christians, are going to respond with, absolutely, yeah. We all mess up. It's over. Let's put it behind us. And generally what happens is that there's a bond of love and fellowship and relationship that is deeper and closer than there was prior to that. But what do we do when there's no repentance? What do, we have, what do we do when someone has sinned against us and won't acknowledge the hurt that they have caused? Or won't acknowledge the legitimacy of our hurt? How do we deal with that? What do we do about that? What do we do when there's no remorse and no change? We got to forget, kind of, sort of. We can't ever forget that it happened. I was violated. I was hurt. I was rejected. I was wounded. I was betrayed. I was marginalized. And it wounded me deeply. But I got to forget that. We've got to forget so that we can release that person from our vengeance. We leave that person to the Lord. But, and this is a caveat, and I think it's important, an important caveat. If a person is not repentant, if we cannot see genuine change in their behavior, we're not obligated to trust them again. We're not ob- if I went into, a, into business with a, with a, a Christian brother, and he, and he took me for a certain amount of money or wasn't faithful to his contractual obligations, I've got to forgive him. If I have a root of bitterness growing in me, that unforgiveness is going to kill me. It's not going to bother him. I've got to forgive him. Unforgiveness is, is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Like it's crazy. But if he comes to me and says, do you want to go into another business venture? I go, no, 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 I don't, thank you. I've forgiven you. I'm leaving that whole situation with the Lord. Vengeance is mine. He will repay. He'll sort it all out in the end. But no, I don't want to go into business with you. I don't, forgiveness doesn't require that I trust you. But it does mean that I pray for you. It does mean that I love you. It does mean that I treat you as a brother in Christ. See, sincere forgiveness, genuine forgiveness, isn't colored with the expectation that the other person apologizes or changes. Don't worry whether or not they agree or understand with you or sympathize with you or empathize with you. Love them. Release them to the Lord. Let let that root of bitterness go. But be wary. Be as gentle as a dove, 
and as wise as a serpent. Thirdly, look for God's purposes in your wound. This is important. Let's read from verse 13. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order they might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment in the gospel. Like, this guy is great. God's changed him. He's an honest man of integrity. God's transformed him by his Holy Spirit. And Paul says, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but by your own accord. Now listen, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever. No longer a slave, but more than a slave as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul is asking Philemon, Philemon, consider this. Think about this for a second, that perhaps there was a reason that God allowed this to happen. Perhaps there was a purpose behind this whole thing, Philemon. God allowed it. In order to create a relationship between you and Onesimus that would never, ever, ever, ever have been had it not been for his betrayal of you, Philemon. So if you forgive Philemon, he's no longer going to be a slave. He is going to be a beloved brother in Christ. And you thought he was useful before? Man, he is going to bless you now in extraordinary ways. He's not only a brother in the flesh, but a brother in the Lord. So I know this for a fact. When Onesimus hatched his plan to run away from Philemon, Maybe with a legitimate motivation, because Philemon may not have been kind, may not have been good, may not have been nice. When he hatched that plan, when he stole that money, when he ran away to Rome, when he spent all that money, did he know that he was going to end up being the bishop of Ephesus? Did he have any idea that tonight we would be sitting here talking about the letter from Paul to Philemon about him? Did he have any understanding of what God was up to in that circumstance? And the answer is no. No. But what Paul is saying here is consider this, Philemon, that perhaps God is at work here behind the scenes accomplishing something that wouldn't otherwise have been accomplished had it not been for the hurt that you felt and the pain that you've suffered. So why does God allow us to suffer? Why is it that we're just going to go on another life and on the committee or at work or whatever and something happens and it cuts so deeply and it hurts you so grievously? Why does God allow it? Why does God allow that rejection, that violation, that wound, that pain, that suffering? Well, I want to tell you about my experience. I, I hired a guy. He's a friend of mine still. But in his exuberance, he split our board and split our church and planted a church. And I felt deep, deep betrayal. Deep betrayal. Now, we've patched it all up, and I love him as a brother in Christ. But I was hurt. And I was angry. And as I thought about it, I realized stuff about myself that I had no idea. I didn't think I could be that vengeful. 
I didn't think I could think such nasty thoughts and wish, wish such nasty things on another person. God began to show me stuff about my heart that was truly ugly. That if you'd asked me before I felt this betrayal and this hurt, I would have said, I don't think that's in my soul. I don't think that's me. And this hurt brought me face to face with the ugliness of my sin. So I think sometimes God allows us to be wounded in order to expose aspects of our character that are pretty ugly, that we would not have become aware of had it not been for the fact that we were wounded. So let me ask you, is it pride that keeps you from, uh, for, from forgiving, that prevents you from forgiving that other person? Is it insecurity, a truly unloving heart, Bitterness, apathy about the unity of the church, fear, a deep down need for justice and vengeance, selfishness. Is it a hypersensitivity? Are you angry because you haven't been thanked enough or acknowledged enough? Are you easily offended or prickly? There's so many things about us that come to the fore. And we don't realize it so often because we're looking at the sin of the other person. We're seeing what they did to me. And we're not seeing what it is that's blocking me from loving them the way Jesus has loved me. And I think that oftentimes the reason that we are allowed to be hurt, the reason that God brings these suffering moments into our lives is to show us what it is that's blocking us from loving others the way Christ has loved me. Are there things that God is wanting to deal with in your life? Things that would never have become part of your conscious awareness, part of your self-understanding had it not been for your hurt and for this wound. In God's economy, hurt is never wasted. It always can and usually does have spiritually therapeutic purposes if we're willing to look past the hurt and past the self-pity and past the betrayal and past the anger and look to see what it is that is not allowing us to extend that hand of love and reconciliation to the brother or sister who has wounded us. And then repent of it. Fourthly, we need to pursue genuine reconciliation. And I think in this part of the book now, Paul gets to the heart of the issue. So continue to read with me from verse 17. He says this, So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Receive Onesimus as you would receive me, the Apostle Paul if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hands. I will repay it to say nothing of you owning, owing me your own self. Now, here he gets to the heart of what real, real forgiveness is. And this is what he says 
Welcome him as a brother. Receive him. That word receive means put your arms around. Hug him. Welcome him warmly into your home. Take by the hand. It means to embrace the other person. And I'm telling you, it would be easy for Philemon to think, okay, Paul, I'll forgive him. Okay, you're forgiven, Onesimus, but I don't want to see you anymore. I'll forgive you, but I'm going to keep you at arm's length. I'll say the right things, but I don't want you in my sight. Let's just agree that you live over there and I'll live over here. And if we have to be in each other's company, let's be polite, but let's really not have any kind of meaningful relationship. That's how I'll forgive you. And that's not forgiveness. That's not forgiveness. The apostle says, receive him, hug him, welcome him, hold him to your breast, accept him as a brother, accept him as you would accept me or receive me. There are a lot of people in our churches who have a very superficial view of forgiveness. Okay, I forgive you, sure, great, no problem. You sit over that side of the church and I'll sit over here. And let's be polite But let's not have any meaningful relationship. That's not forgiveness. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is to receive that one back into your life. And to live as if the offense had not happened. It is to make peace. And this is the the essence of biblical forgiveness. This is the essence of what biblical forgiveness is. It's to be a peacemaker. Like in this, in this church right now, I, I just know it, there are peacemakers and there are peacekeepers. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. They're the children of God. Like he says it in the Beatitudes, as plain as day. Blessed are those who make peace, the peacemakers, because they're the children of God. Peacekeepers, on the other hand, well, I don't know if they're the children of God or not. Peacekeepers are people who retain their hurt. They live with the tension. They smile. They act politely. They say all the right things. They suppress their anger. They put on a facade. They wear a mask. They talk about unity and love. But in their hearts, they're still at war. And you know it because there's a coldness and an estrangement that is not of the Holy Spirit of God. Peacemakers don't truly forgive. Peacekeepers, I'm sorry, don't truly forgive. Peacemakers truly forgive. They reconcile, they allow deep bonds of friendship. Relationship that goes deeper than it had before the wound happened. So how do you do this? Maybe you're thinking of a person right now Maybe not in this church, or maybe in this church, this fellowship. And you're wounded, and you know that it's not right. Oh, and you're keeping the peace, and you think you've forgiven, but you have not forgiven. You haven't welcomed them. You haven't put your arms. You haven't received them back into your life. You know that there's something there. It could be your husband. It could be your wife. It could be your brother, sister. It could be your pastor. It could be an elder. You just know it's not right. There's an estrangement. And you say the right things and you have a smile on your face. 
But you'd, you really, in your heart of hearts, would like them to be over on that side of the church if they still come to church at all, and I'll sit over here. And there's a distance, and there's a coldness. How do you get past that? How do you get to the place where you honestly, authentically receive them into your life as a brother and sister, as the Lord wants you to? I think what Paul does at the end of the book is just brilliant. This is the fifth point. Choose, if necessary, to live at the cost of the sin of another. Choose, if necessary, to live with the cost of the sin of another. Paul says this. If you consider, I'll read it again. If you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Now listen, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I'll repay it. The word that he uses there, that that word charge, is the word credit or impute. And Philemon knew the Apostle Paul and knew his writings well enough to know that that is exactly the word that the Apostle Paul used to describe the heart and the essence of the gospel. And without actually saying it, he's using terminology that would have flashed off the page for Philemon. That's the word that Paul used in Romans. When he talked about the gospel and how that God credited my sin to Jesus and how that God and the cross credited his righteousness to me. He paid it, all of it, Christ took all of my sin, all of it, upon himself and suffered in my place and God punished him so that I could be as righteous as Christ is before God. The one who had never sinned became sin so that I could become the righteousness of God in him. You see, that's what Paul is hinting at, not so subtly. If he owes you anything, If there is any debt at all, credit it to my charge. I'll pay it all. Every last penny, I'll pay it. You see, Paul is forcing Philemon to think about the gospel. He's saying to Philemon, impute all of that charge to my account just as all of the cost of your sin was imputed to Jesus' account on the cross. Be willing to suffer for the sin of another in order that there will be peace between brothers. And this is the heart and the essence of forgiveness. As we said right at the very beginning, your sin last week, your sin was charged to Jesus' account. He gave you what you didn't deserve and he took what he didn't deserve in order that we might become children of God. Now, should it shock or surprise any of us that Jesus would ask us to do that for others? Would it shock or surprise any of us that Jesus asks us to live the gospel? That's what forgiveness is. It's the gospel lived. 
in your relationship with your kids, in your relationship with your wife, in your relationship with your elders and your pastor, in your relationship with your boss, in your relationship with your neighbors. It's the gospel. It's how we live. It's who we are. People who have received the grace of God, whose righteousness, whose, who, who have Christ's righteousness applied to our account are asked to give grace to others who don't deserve it. So you may carry a wound of another for the rest of your life. You've been betrayed, you've been slandered, you've been rejected. And all of that can leave scars, some of which never, ever will go away. They'll never fully disappear. And you wonder, how under these circumstances can I possibly go on? How can I forgive what is essentially unforgivable? Remember this. Jesus carries scars too. Scars that you and I gave him. For all eternity, his hands, his feet, and his side will say that he has credited us his righteousness and taken upon himself our sin. That wound will always reflect that reality. So why should that not be the same for us? Why should that not be the same for us? So today I want to ask you, are you willing to pay that price for that brother, that sister, that family member? And if you're not, or if it's just too hard, let me, let me share with you the gospel. Because there's no antidote to that bitterness. There's no antidote to that unforgiveness. There's nothing that can solve that brokenness, that wound, that anger, but the gospel. So here's the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross for you. And God credited all of my sin and your sin to his account. And in six hours, he hung there that day on the cross, suspended between heaven and earth. And God vented his wrath for your sin, $10 billion worth. on Jesus. And now he asks you to forgive that brother or sister who has wounded you, seriously hurt you. And how can we say no? How can we refuse that? How can we resist that? Unless the gospel has never impacted us. Unless the truth of the gospel has never settled in our soul in such a way as to transform and redeem us. Christ died in your place so that you would be forgiven. He did it for you. He's asking you now to do it for others. So let me pray for you and ask God that he would give us all the grace to forgive as he has forgiven us. Father, I pray tonight that you, by your Holy Spirit's power, would help us to see the magnificence and the glory of the cross. How that your son went there and took our place. All of our sin was credited to him. And all of his righteousness is given to us. And Lord, I pray that that truth, that reality would so break our hearts that the, that the 
heaviness of that huge debt would so break our hearts that we would be willing to let go of that lesser debt and forgive from our hearts that brother or sister who has wronged us, that husband and wife, that child, that parent. Let there be reconciliation in the house of God, I pray, and unity and love, I ask. For the honor and the glory of Jesus, we pray.